Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Shailen Romney Garrett is the co-author of The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago, and how we can do it again, along with Robert Putnam, Bob Putnam from Harvard, recent guest on the program. Shailen, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it's great to be here, Michael. Thank you. So off the cuff, let me try and explain why I'm so eager to have this conversation with you. I think it goes like this. Recently, actually another Harvard name, Raj Chetty, published an analysis where, in very simple terms, he was given this extraordinary access to census data, and he looked at zip codes, and he looked at Facebook interactions, and the very short takeaway was that a path for mobility exists for the poor, particularly when they have exposure to those who are better off financially. So if at all possible, if you're poor and you can raise your kids around rich people, you're going to put them on a track towards success. And I was thinking about the data and I read in on it and I thought, geez, this all kind of reminds me of, of bowling alone, 
which your cohort, your co-author Bob Putnam wrote many years ago, where he talks about how we've become increasingly disconnected from one another. And he cited, well, bowling leagues and parent teacher associations and volunteering and so forth. And then I had Putnam on the brain. And then I said, you know, I remember reading Bill Bishop's book, which was The Big Sort. Bishop argues, again, in simplistic terms, that post-Vietnam, we disengaged. When we came together in the Internet era, we were able to segregate according to very narrow interests, whether they were avocations, whether they were political interests, sports, hobbies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, And then I thought, this kind of reminds me, as well uh, of Charles Murray's coming apart because Murray documented how when you've got a community like Kensington in Massachusetts, pardon me, uh, Belmont in Massachusetts and Kensington in Philadelphia, whites, the white working class are no longer associating with the more prosperous whites. They're not given the opportunity. I put this all together and I said to myself, this is it. Like, we are all going our separate ways. We are not spending time with one another. We're all living in figurative or literal gated communities. And then I read The Upswing. And you address many of the themes in this book. First of all, how am I doing so far in putting the whole kitchen sink <laughs> in? Are they all interconnected the way that I've, I've haphazardly described them? Oh, I definitely think that they're, they're interconnected. And in fact, that's Sort of the argument that the upswing makes is that, you know, um, my my co-author, Bob Putnam, who, of course, is a world class data scientist, began to discover that there were all of these long range trends in politics, in society, in economics, in culture that all looked the same way over a really long period of time, which is pretty rare when you're looking at you know various different data sets. And started to get this hunch that there was sort of a meta trend going on here, that there was something bigger than any of these one phenomena that you've just described um, that, that's been happening in America over the past 125 years. And, and the story that we present in the upswing is really this idea that the story of the American experiment in the 20th century is really one of a long upswing toward increasing solidarity, toward an increasing feeling of togetherness and we-ness, followed then by a steep downturn into increasing individualism. So the way we describe that in the book is from I in the early 20th century to we in the mid-20th century, back again to I. And so all of those phenomena that you're describing, those are characteristics of this very I-focused moment that we're living in. I'm looking at a chart in the book, uh, page 285 in my paperback version. I, I know we're doing radio, not television, but it shows economic, political, social and cultural trends beginning at the end of the 19th century and coming to present time. And each of these overlaps. I know you know what I'm talking about. What's illustrated in that diagram? So, you know. What we're seeing is that basically we took four different lenses to look at American society over this 125-year period. We looked at economics, really asking the question, um, is America moving toward greater economic equality or toward greater economic inequality and when? Then the second question is politics. Is America moving toward greater cooperation or greater polarization and when? 
And the third lens is the social fabric. Are we moving toward greater interconnectedness or more disconnectedness and when? And the fourth question was really culture. Are we moving more in a direction of solidarity and of togetherness and believing we're all in this together? Or are we moving more in a direction of isolation, you know, me focus, hyper individualism and when? And when we looked at all four of those different trends, they all tracked the same trajectory. It was astonishing because each of those different trends, in order to to look at them, what we looked at was scores of different underlying measures of things like polarization and things like economic inequality. We, we put them all together in four different charts, and they overlapped to such an, to such an extent that it really looked like we were looking at one phenomenon not four. and the peak the peak of the four the high watermark if if i remember correctly that which would be highest on the y-axis 1960 so therefore what accounts for the fact that we went from i to we to i and the break point seems to be the 60s yeah so there's been a lot of discussion about you know what happened since the 1960s why have we been on this downward slide in all of these different areas and that turns out to be truthfully, a harder question to answer. Um, it's actually a little bit easier to look at the upswing part and say, how did we move from I to we? And that's really the focus of the book, is what got us moving in the right direction. But your question is what, what flipped us into the wrong direction. And, and there's not a simple answer to that question. But I do think one really big part of the story is white backlash to the civil rights movement. I mean, so all of these we decades, from the beginning of the century to the mid-1960s, we were moving more and more in this direction of expanding the American we. And so it's no surprise that it was in the 1960s that we finally developed kind of the political will to pass laws that were more inclusive, right? But immediately following that, we saw a backlash of Americans saying, white Americans saying, not in my backyard. And it's hard to say whether that white backlash caused an increase in individualism or whether the increasing cultural individualism, you know, exacerbated the white backlash. That's hard to tease out from the data. But but race is really an important part of this story. Neither of us has used the descriptor gilded age in this brief conversation so far, but we went through a gilded age right at the end of the 19th century. And that was the beginning of the ascension of the trends you're describing. And then you see us either in the midst of or having just come out of one in the 1980s and 90s. Absolutely. So we firmly believe that we are living through a second American gilded age. And when what does that mean, by the way? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, so you often will hear that term used to mean that we're living in a moment of deep economic inequality. Because when we look at what the Gilded Age originally described, it described the 1880s, 1890s, this moment during the Industrial Revolution when there was this huge gap between the rich and poor. You had the the Astors and the Vanderbilts living on, you know, the Upper East Side, and you had the huddled masses on the Lower East Side of New York and equivalent places all over the country. But, but what people don't often realize is that, that that deep and accelerating inequality during the first Gilded Age was also accompanied by deep political polarization and also accompanied by a vitriolic public discourse and a fraying social fabric and public and private narcissism. So all of that was part of what the Gilded Age was back in the 1890s. And we climbed our way out of it over 70 years. 
and then descended right back into it. So when you look at hard measures, we're talking about, you know, data that you can count and measure. We are living in a moment that looks remarkably, even breathtakingly similar to what the original American Gilded Age looked like with all of those aspects that I just described on display. This is Shailen Romney Garrett, who, along with Robert Putnam, wrote The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. 
All right. So big picture, if we went from I to we and then back to I, and we really can't explain what caused the shift in the 60s back toward the I realm. Most important question for you, what can we learn from from history so that we get back on a path where it's more we focused? Yeah, excuse me. So number one lesson here is that we've been in the same situation we're in right now once before. A lot of people look at America today and say, oh, it's just never been this bad, aside from the Civil War. Right. But the, the data is quite clear that we have been here once before. So the biggest broad strokes lesson is we've been here before. We successfully weathered the storm. We got out of it and we can do it again. So first of all, let's not lose hope. We've done this once before, America, and we can do it again. So the question is how? And there's a lot to say there. So let me see if I can just summarize. One of the biggest things that we see in the first upswing when we pulled ourselves out of the last Gilded Age was that there was a major moral awakening that sort of swept over the country. Uh, People really began to question the underlying logic of the systems that we had created. We had created systems that were highly competitive, that prized the individual, getting ahead above all else. And we had a movement of people who said, now, wait a minute. Society is not just one giant competition. Society is about how we can help each other, what we can do for one another, what responsibilities we have to one another. And that um, the historian Richard Hofstetter called this a sort of moral indignation directed inward. You had people saying, I've been complicit in creating this inequality and this polarization and this vitriol. How can I change? And that really swept the nation um, and inspired a lot of other reforms. Um, the, this era that came on the heels of the Gilded Age was called the Progressive Era, capital P Progressive. So not, we're not talking about the leftmost end of the political spectrum here. That's how we use the term progressive today. We're talking about the capital P Progressive Era, which was a very diverse movement of people who were all inspired by this, by this idea that society needed to get back to foundations of helpfulness, of solidarity, of responsibility to one another. We had a lot of young reformers, very young reformers, leading the charge. Um, these reformers were, fo- were focused on building associations across lines of difference, bringing people together, creating relationships, creating bonds of mutual trust. And this was really a grassroots movement. A lot of times people look at the progressive era and they remember it for all of the high-level reforms that took place, the creation of the consumer protection agencies and the passage of multiple um, constitutional amendments and, you know, um, child protection, child labor laws and these big reforms. But we forget that that was really the caboose of this upswing story. The engine of change was happening at the grassroots where people were making change right outside their doorsteps. and those reforms really bubbled up to become national innovation. So but if Shailen, we want to see another upswing today, we've got to see some of these same elements. Okay, but in the last upswing, let me just play devil's advocate. We weren't going against the tide of a polarized media that had a profit motive to keep us divided, and nor did we have the prospect of the Internet, which so easily enabled our staying in our respective bunkers. So so you've, you've, you've hit upon the biggest asterisk to this story, right, which is that there are some things about the landscape today that just weren't a part of the story back then. And for sure, the Internet and, and the, ubiquitous, the ubiquitousness of a polarized media 
for sure. Media was definitely very polarized back then, but it was in the form of newspapers and pamphlets and things that that you couldn't encounter, you know, 57,000 times a day. Um, and so this is a huge problem. But here's what we do know. That era was characterized by massive technological change, change that really rocked people's lives and upended everything. That's the same thing that we're going through with the Internet revolution today. And the response then was how do we innovate around this technology such that it begins working toward the society that we want to see rather than feeling like we are controlled by this technology and and we're sort of on this road to hell that we can't control, right? And so really I think the lesson here is we have got to take the reins to recognize that we have agency in shaping how these forces create our society. So far, these these media forces have been acting upon us, and we need to take the reins, as the progressives did back then, and think about how we can harness these amazing technologies to create the society that we want. Shailen, if I go back to where I began this conversation, by the way, thank you for being so gracious with your time. The book is called The Upswing. If I go back to where I began and I put together Shailen Romney Garrett, and Bob Putnam, and Bill Bishop, and Charles Murray, and Raj Chetty, it seems to me we need to figure out where we're going to spend more time with people who don't look like us, don't sound like us, and are not like us. Where might that be? Maybe a program of national service that doesn't have to be military? So I'm the biggest fan you could possibly find of national service. I'm a Return to Peace Corps volunteer. I really believe in the power of national service, um, both to galvanize a moral awakening and also to bring bring together people who are not like each other. But interestingly, one of the things that comes out of the Chetty data is that one of the places that people are most likely to bump into folks who aren't like themselves are in churches. So, you know, there's a lot of there are some institutions in our society. Where, where else? Not been- like where else? Like, if, if people are hearing it and they're getting your message and I think I'm getting it the way you you intend it. Like where where should I be going? What the, the, the greatest exposure that I have to people unlike me is my morning coffee at Wawa, which is like the convenience store of <laughs> choice on, you know, in the northeastern United States. And they're expanding their footprint because when I, at the hour I'm there, it's landscapers, it's me, it's some people in the medical profession. But for the rest of the day, I'm surrounded by people who are like I am. So, so I don't necessarily think that we can point to a place and say this is the place to go because, as you've pointed out, we are living in a very sordid society. But there right. is a movement afoot in this country, which is called the Dialogue Across Difference Movement, um, that is seeking to bring people together across lines of difference in a very intentional way. And honestly, I think that this might be the only solution to our problem. I don't know that there's one place that we can go and say, oh, that's where I'm going to find the people who aren't like me, right? But we can intentionally choose to put ourselves into situations where we are in conversation. And there are tons of great organizations. Um, There's an umbrella organization called the Listen First Project, which is you can go to their website and they put together tons of opportunities that are happening right in your neighborhood to engage in intentional and often facilitated conversations across lines of difference. I think this is this is a powerful movement that's going to chase, change the face of America if we all go and seek it out. And and if I could, you know, highlight a quote from one of my heroines, Jane Adams, who founded Whole House in Chicago. She was one of these young leaders of the progressive era. She said that we are under a moral obligation in choosing our experiences. Because it is our experiences that ultimately determine our understanding of life. 
makes sense to me. Where we encounter people who are unlike us are not going to find us. We have to go out and find them because that's what will form us into a more inclusive society. And a, a final thought, if I may, I think that's also it's also important in terms of how we raise our kids. And I, I talk a good yes. game. I hope we've been able to do this. But, you know, I, you've got to give them diverse experiences. You get yes, you get the fi- you get the final 30 seconds. And again, thank you for being here. What do you most want us to know? You know, I really do want to emphasize this hopefulness that we see from looking back at the historical narrative. I want Americans to realize that there is hope. We have been in a situation just as bad as the one that we're in today, and we found ways to get ourselves out of it. History can teach us a lot of lessons about how they did it last time, but I think also we are innovative. Americans as citizens We are a can-do people. We need to find that spirit again. We need to look right outside of our doorstep and see what kinds of problems we can solve. We need to start seeking community with those who are not like ourselves. Those are the things that led the upswing last time. Those are the things that are going to lead us through it again. We can do this, America. We can come back together again. Nicely done. Shailen Romney Garrett, The Upswing. Thank you so much. I really appreciated your being here. Thank you, Michael. It was a great conversation. The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again, co-authored with Bob Putnam, who's a recent guest on the program as well. Michael Smirconish. Okay, so we've had the conversation as to, well, where where are you going to rub shoulders with people who don't look like you, who aren't like you? Bob is in Palm Springs, and he's got the answer to this. Palm Springs, California. Hi, Bob. Good morning, Michael. Hey, um, I've been cursed with the disease of alcoholism, but uh, relating to your last guest, one of the places where I meet most of the most interesting people and from different backgrounds is at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Now, I don't expect uh, normies to start going to AA meetings, but places like that are places to go engage with people from all different walks of life. I also volunteer as a, a football referee. Uh, That's another great place to go about. And, you know, you meet parents, teachers, uh, students, coaches from all different walks of life as well. So it is up to us, you know, as your last guest said, to get involved and to to interact with one another. I never thought of AA as a place where you're going to see it all, obviously with one common denominator, but it makes perfect sense. You're going to see people who are white and black and Hispanic and Asian, rich and poor and yeah, I, I, I'll bet it's been quite quite an education for you. Quite. Just the social interaction itself is, is eye-opening on many levels. And, you know, of course, everyone gets to speak freely, and it's, you know, anonymous, obviously, so sure. everyone feels safe. And, and, and my, my father, my father for, for 40 years, was a high school and uh, collegiate football referee. And if he were here, he'd be echoing exactly what you said. And my own experience, thank you, Bob, from youth sports, you know, high school football and and baseball and so forth. Uh, make your point uh, in a public sense. Right. I mean, f- for me, K through 12 was spent in, a, in a, a good public school environment. And yes, gave me a lot of exposure I would not otherwise have had. Sean, you're from Utah. Quickly, what did you most want to say? Well, I, I just reject the 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 nationalism. The, the extreme nationalism that we've been going through over over the last I don't know hundred years. I mean, the Tocqueville talked about this, and you know when he warned about democratic despotism, and that's that's where I see our path is with these extreme nationalism. And it doesn't have to be a white. It doesn't have to be a black nationalism. It doesn't have to be any of that. It just be a totalitarian nationalism like the early 1900s. 
and I worry about that. We don't have to have national, everything be national. You know, states can run things, but we don't have imagination in our states, so we lean to, you know, the national government, know, and that's not know, what the founders I, it, had. I, I'm going to read something to you. Thank you, Sean, for that reference. As Sean mentions de Tocqueville. The very first paragraph of Shalin's book says, In the early 1930s, a French aristocrat named Alex de Tocqueville traveled to America at the behest of his government with a mission to better understand the American prison system. At the time, the United States was a fledgling democracy barely half a century old, and many nations looked to it as a bold experiment. It was an open question as to whether securing liberty and equality by means of a constitution and a participatory government would or could succeed. And then they go on, she and Bob Putnam, to wonder, like, what would de Tocqueville think if he came here today and saw where we are about the balance between individual liberty and the promotion of a common good? All right. Well, I'm I'm glad glad that so many of us took so much away from that conversation. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.